Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the All Saints podcast. So we have been thinking this last couple of weeks about the critical social justice movement. Uh, if you've no idea what it is that I'm talking about, then uh, I encourage you to uh, go back and take a look at the last two or three uh, podcasts in this series. Um, if you do know what I'm talking about and you have been following those uh, podcasts, you'll know that we've been looking at this book. We're well, not really looking at it, actually. We've been using it as a framework with which to uncover some of the issues that the critical social justice movement uh, sets before us. Um, and today we get to probably the most useful section in the book. It's the second of the three chapters, which is entitled, if I just find the contents page again so I get it right, it's uns- uh, it's entitled Wokecraft. Uh, the book is uh, Counter Wokecraft by uh, Charles Pincourt and James Lindsay. And um, the term woke, as you'll know, refers uh, in more colloquial terms to the critical social justice movement as it now uh, refers to itself. Uh, And the key insight that I want to highlight today, along with some of the implications of it, is this. The critical social justice movement is not an ideology. Wokeness is not an ideology. Uh, You've probably heard people refer to it in that way, and in a sense, it is an ideology. You've probably heard me refer to it in that way. What I mean to say, and what I mean to uh, emphasize for the purposes of getting the point across, is that it's not merely an ideology. And uh, that lies behind, really, the title of this book. It's not about understanding wokeness as a set of ideas, but woke craft as an activist movement. And I want to illustrate how a failure to understand this can have potentially quite serious consequences. And I want to talk very briefly through that very large uh, and quite helpful central section in Pincourt and Lindsay's book before just drawing attention to one or two things which um, I hope will be helpful to you. It will be a mistake, I think, if I were to spend um, time in this kind of context talking through section by section and paragraph by paragraph. It will just take forever and we would all be just chewing off our arms in frustration because um, the material is uh, really uh, frustrating to listen to in a sense. But the book itself gives in very concise and useful form um, uh, great summaries and insights into uh, what it is we're talking about here. So that's why I'm encouraging those of you for whom this might be relevant to buy it uh, and take a look at it. Um, so anyway, before we get into that, let me just um, remind you of a couple of things I said last week, which um, really warrant uh, repetition because they're not stated in this book. The first is that there is a danger uh, among some secular critics of the critical social, social justice movement to conflate all the categories of group difference that the critical social justice movement regards as relevant and to treat them all in the same way. Uh, That is to say, uh, the critical social justice movement, as you all know, uh, makes reference to different classes of oppressed and oppressor groups, so-called, such as gay, straight, male, female, black, white, and so on. And the temptation is for us to take on board that way of looking at things such that we regard all of those polarities as basically equivalent. And one of the crucial biblical insights that is often missing from uh, this kind of secular critique of uh, critical social justice is the recognition that the, the polarities themselves have different significances. So obviously, the difference between male and female is a created difference that has some considerable bearing on how we treat people, how we relate to men 
and how we relate to women ought to be somewhat different. Uh, and we need to reflect that if we're going to behave as actually biblically just and righteous people. Uh, other uh, categories, notably black and white, and I did spend some time talking about that category last week, have absolutely no significance for how we should treat people. It's a created difference to be sure, but it has about as much significance as eye colour or hair colour or height in how we should treat people. And therefore, functionally, it ought not to make any difference at all in how we regard and how our relationships work with other people. And then, of course, there are differences which are rolled into the same synthetic framework like um, gay, straight, cis, trans, and so on, which refer to moral choices that is, the decisions that people have made. And scripture labels some of those moral choices as sinful. And so we've got to be really careful not to buy into the picture where all these uh, pairs of categories are treated in the same way. Uh, so I said a bit more about that last week. I'm not going to repeat everything here. But I will repeat just secondly uh, something that I did say last week, albeit briefly. We have to make sure that we are actually treating people in all those different categories in the appropriate way. Uh, to put it in the broadest possible terms, we have to love everybody um, given who they are, recognizing that some things about them, like their height or their uh, skin tone or their hair color, will make no difference to how we love them. Um, and other th things about them, their maleness or their femaleness or um, uh, the uh, sexual lifestyle they may have chosen will make a difference to how we treat people. And that isn't to say that we don't love people who've made immoral sexual lifestyles. Obviously, it doesn't mean that. But what it does mean is that the way that we love people needs to be informed scripturally. And we must, well, nothing that we read in a book like this, nothing that I say will help us if we're failing actually to love people. Um, in critiquing the critical social justice movement, we mustn't let go of actual biblical justice. Um, and if we're not uh, loving and being just in terms defined biblically, then well, I suggested last week, and I'll say again, um, it seems to me that the critical social justice movement may turn out to be God's judgment against us for that injustice, and we deserve everything we get if we are, in fact, behaving in sexist and racist and uh, other ungodly ways. So just uh, to restate that, because it's an important um, clarification to make sure is front and centre in our thinking. Now, let me get back to what I really want to spend some time talking about today which is the claim that I started off with at the beginning of uh, this segment, uh, saying that wokeness is not an ideology, or properly, it's not just an ideology. What I mean by that is that uh, the critical social justice movement is an activist movement. So the sense, to, to the extent that it has ideological elements, that is to say, uh, there, are, there are strands of teaching and thought within it, it is to be understood not simply as a worldview in the sense of it's a way of looking at the world or a way of analysing the world or a way of understanding the world. It's that, but it's more than that. It is a manifesto for action in the world. Uh, wokeness is not just a way of thinking, it's a way of living. And so it should be understood as an activist's creed. I've said before um, that one illustration of this or manifestation of this will be felt in the commercial world in the in years to come where companies that have um, allowed uh, woke ideology let's call it that for now 
to gain a seat in the boardroom will find that woke practice starts to be required at every level in the organization. And anything that's not woke praxis or woke practice will be uh, frowned upon initially and then critiqued. And eventually, uh, unless the movement is stopped in its tracks in that in that context, in that corporate context, wherever it is, eventually it will ruin the organization because uh, the activists won't be happy until everything is directed toward that end. It's an activist's creed, an activist's charter. And what that means is that people who are, um, to use a taxonomy again that I uh, highlighted to you last week, which you did get from this book, people who are fully aware, woke, rather than merely woke proximate, uh, people who understand the ideology and for that reason want to push it, they won't be happy, they won't be content until the practice which they believe follows from their ideology starts to permeate and shape every aspect of every domain in which they have influence. Now, I mention this because uh, it's relevant to churches in ways which, understandably, this book um, provides helpful input towards understanding but doesn't address directly. And I want to give an example of this. Um, and I'm not going to tell you the name of the denomination from which it derives because uh, you don't need to know that. And the purpose of this in any case is not to criticize that denomination. Um, if you uh, are senior or even uh, not so senior within that denomination, you'll probably soon realize who it is I'm talking about. But I'm not at all interested in criticizing um, Christian denominations. I'm actually interested if if possible, in helping, uh, obviously. Um, but at the very least, I want to be constructive in pointing out some of the mistakes that it's so easy to make um, as Christians when we're engaging with people who appear to be well-intentioned but are actually driven consciously or unconsciously by critical social justice thinking. And that's really the issue. So what do you do in a context where you're in a church and uh, or some kind of denomination or some other church-related structure, and somebody starts uh, proposing that um, critical social justice or uh, woke uh, ways of thinking, lines of thinking, ought to have some influence in, some purchase upon the way in which the church or denomination operates. It would be naive for us to think this won't happen to us or rather that it couldn't happen to us. It's extremely likely, given the rate of this movement's spread, that all of our churches will at some point or other have members within it, maybe even people looking for positions of employment or offices within the, the organization or the church, will we'll encounter people in those contexts who have been consciously or subconsciously influenced by this movement. And we need to understand what we ought not to do at that point. So I'm going to read for you um, a section from the resolutions of this denomination. And you see if you can figure out what they've done wrong in making these resolutions. Uh, there are five uh, short sections of par paragraphs I'm going to read, and I'll, I'll comment on them, uh, one or two of them on the way through. Uh, and then I'll show you where the trouble actually lies and see if you spotted it. So um, first... The denomination affirmed, quote, scripture as the first, last and sufficient authority with respect to how the church seeks to redress social ills. And they continue, we reject any conduct, creeds and religious opinions which contradict scripture. End quote. Well, that looks 
pretty secure, doesn't it? They've affirmed the authority of Scripture. What could possibly go wrong with that? Um, secondly, here's um, an extract from the second resolution. Critical race theory and intersectionality should only be employed as analytical tools subordinate to Scripture, not as transcendent, sorry, transcendent ideological frameworks. Again, you notice what's happened. They've, uh, uh, even in uh, welcoming some of the language into these resolutions, they've explicitly placed the insights of the critical social justice movement in a position subordinate to Scripture. Well, they've tried to. Third, they resolved, quote, that the gospel of Jesus Christ alone grants the power to change people in society because he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus, quoting Philippians 1.6. Again, uh, it looks so secure, doesn't it? Uh, only the gospel can change people. Uh, fourth, uh, they resolved that they, this denomination, quote, will carefully analyze how the information gleaned from these tools, meaning the tools of critical social justice, are employed to address social dynamics. There, you might think, is uh, the problem, uh, the use of these tools. We'll come back to that in a second. And then fifthly, uh, there's, there are more resolutions than this, but these are the relevant ones, I think. Uh, they say that they repudiate the misuse of insights gained from critical race theory, intersectionality, and any unbiblical ideologies that can emerge from their use when absolutized as a worldview. So again, they they seem to be trying to slam the back door and the side doors and bolt all the windows and make sure that nothing bad can come in um, as a consequence of... Uh, the resolutions that they have articulated, including the fourth one, which let me read that again. They, quote, will carefully analyze how the information gleaned from these tools are employed to address social dynamics. Now, it's tempting to imagine that that's where the problem lies, isn't it? I don't know whether as I was reading through, you, your ears pricked up at that point, and maybe I, I was giving the game away slightly by suggesting that um, that might be problematic. And indeed it could be to analyse how the information gleaned from these tools are employed to address social dynamics. Looks like what you're doing is giving a seat at the table of, I don't know, the missions committee or um, various other uh, committees and subcommittees uh, employed to uh, help the churches engage with their culture and so on. Uh, you're giving a seat at that table to critical social justice uh, advocates, or at least to people who are familiar with the terminology. And notice that that could be a significant problem, um, that the people who are likely to be able to persuade the rest of the denomination that they have the skills to uh, be seated in those positions will be precisely the people who are most familiar with, and therefore likely uh, most persuaded by, the ideology itself. So perhaps that fourth point that I read is where the problem lies. But I want to suggest that the problem doesn't lie in any of the resolutions. The problem actually emerges not in the resolutions themselves, but in the preamble. In the assumptions which weren't argued and therefore resolved, but which were taken for granted as the platform upon which the arguments were to take place in the first place. One of those preambles reads as follows. Again, I'm just going to read it out to you. Quote, whereas, 
all these, these preambles start with whereas, don't they? Quote, critical race theory is a set of analytical tools that explain how race has and continues to function in society. And intersectionality is the study of how different personal characteristics overlap and inform one's experience, unquote. I want to suggest to you that that's the problem. The problem is not, in the first instance, the fact that this uh, set of ideologies is going to be talked about uh, or even will be analysed. The problem goes deeper than that. It goes back to the assumptions that had been made right at the outset about what it is we're dealing with. Quote, a set of analytical tools that explain how race has and continues to function in society. And intersectionality is the study of how different personal characteristics overlap and inform one's experience. Just a note about those terms. Um, we've talked about critical race theory in particular um, previously. Intersectionality, just to remind you, is a term coined by Kimberly Crenshaw, a student of Derek Bell, who first coined the term critical, critical theory. Um, intersectionality uh, relates to the claim that uh, the status of a person doesn't just derive from their membership of uh, groups in society, whether uh, male, female, um, native-born or immigrant, uh, black, white, and so on and so forth, but also from the combination of their membership of more than one group. In other words, we exist at the so-called intersection of those different uh, oppressed or oppressor categories. And Kimberly Crenshaw's claim was that, um, these aren't quite her words, but this is the, the sense of it, that the oppressed or oppressor status of a person isn't merely additive in relation to our membership of those groups. It's more like it multiplicative. Um, uh, the, the status of somebody who is in two or three oppressed groups is uh, far more oppressed and downtrodden, and therefore their moral status far higher than, than the sum of the statuses of people who are just in one of those groups. So that's what intersectionality means. And so what this uh, preamble is stating is the understanding of this denomination that uh, these, uh, this way of thinking is merely that, a way of thinking, a set of analytical tools. And I want to emphasize, it's not merely a set of analytical tools. It is a manifesto for action. And the problem here is that the so-called insights of this toxic way of thinking, which is actually opposed to the gospel in obvious and profound ways, the insights of this way of thinking have been brought into the denomination's heart where they will serve not merely as a way of thinking, but as something which shapes the way people are instructed to live. Let me illustrate with an example. Imagine uh, a parallel with another worldview, let's call it that, that is more than a worldview, um, that's an activist's creed, a manifesto for action. Think of Islam. Islam, of course, is a set of beliefs. Yeah, of course it's that. But it is more than that, isn't it? And we recognize that um, Islam is a, uh, a religion that 
that doesn't merely propose that people believe certain things, but that they do certain things and that they hold the doing of those things as having supreme importance. Islam is a totalizing worldview. It's not something which can be just tacked onto your life and leave the rest of it unchanged. Um, well, imagine if somebody had uh, proposed that this Christian denomination should um, uh, begin its considerations of Islam by saying that Islam is an analytical framework for understanding aspects of the religious life of the world. And then because of that, the recognition that Islam uh, helps us to understand uh, how people think religiously and relate to one another, they continued by proposing that we will carefully analyse how the insights gleaned from Islam will help us to understand religious, religious experience. What, what would you think of a Christian denomination that did that? You, you would think they had lost their mind. And you would be right. You'd th they would have taken leave of their senses to imagine that um, Islam, of all uh, religious ways of life, could be reduced to an ideology from which we might learn things. It is so much more than that. The point is not that you can't learn anything from unbelievers. That's not the point at all. The point, rather, is that you can't learn those things from Islam specifically because you can't confine it to being merely an ideology that informs you. It's a totalizing worldview and way of life that is designed to shape its adherents. It's not happy with just giving information. And crucially, neither is critical theory in general, neither is the critical social justice movement in any of its forms. And I regret that um, the denomination that I'm speaking about, which I'm not going to tell you the name of because I don't think it's relevant for the purposes of this podcast, I regret that they're going to discover in a few years' time that they've made a mistake here, that what's going to start happening is that the people who they imagined would just be bringing insights will be bringing instruction, and that it won't be possible to build barricades around that and stop it from uh, overwhelming other aspects of that church's teaching without actually just driving it out completely. Uh, and so, well, I pray that they realize what's going on and reverse that decision. But if they don't, then there's trouble coming. And we mustn't be naive and imagine that the same thing could never happen uh, to us. So then, um, uh, where are we going to go next? I, really, what I'd like to do is just to uh, do a couple of things. First, I'd like to um, just summarize in the broadest possible terms what uh, Pincourt and Lindsay uh, do and say in chapter two. What they're really doing is uh, something like this. Given that wokeness ought to be understood not merely as a way of thinking, but as a way of acting, it's woke craft, not merely wokeness. How does it do its craft? How does it go about its business? And chapter two contains, uh, contains a uh, really uh, insightful uh, and concise, potent set of descriptions of the different kinds of things, which particularly in the university context, which is where Pincourt and Lindsay are uh, they're most familiar with, but also elsewhere, the kinds of things that people can expect to find. I'll read through a section of a selection of the, the headings um, just to give you a, a sense of the kinds of things they're talking about. Um, so principles of woke craft. Um, always try. 
least amount of force necessary. Uh, don't uh, antagonize people unnecessarily. Just do whatever you need to do to get uh, one foot in the door. And every advance should succeed. Make sure you do get at least one toe in the door. Um, uh, key tools of Wokecraft in section 2.3 and following, what, what they call the Woke Dog Whistle, which is, a, uh, I suppose, a, um, a somewhat derogatory way of referring to uh, the use of language by uh, proponents of critical social justice to signal their identity to other proponents of critical social justice so that they can identify one another. Uh, woke crossover words. I'm going to say something more detailed about that in a second. Um, then there's a long and really helpful discussion uh, of various micro-tactics uh, designed to subvert um, normal decision-making processes. So, um, probably not in a church context, but perhaps elsewhere. Um, uh, Lindsay and Pincourt observed that uh, woke activists will insist on informal decision-making and uh, simply making decisions by public vote rather than secret ballot um, uh, in order to uh, put themselves in a position where it's easier to manipulate and bully people with whom they disagree and so on. Uh, a few uh, uh, more um, examples, intentional misrepresentation, piling on, using consensus as coercion, um, cancelling and deplatforming. That's, um, they, they say, the most forceful woke bullying tactic. Well, that's probably right. Um, and there's a whole bunch of other uh, details here, which I'm not going to talk about in detail. But what I want to do is to talk about um, what they call uh, the reverse Mott and Bailey Trojan horse technique. This is, it sounds long and complicated, um, it is somewhat complex, but it is so common and so effective if we don't realise what's going on, that it is worth, I think, I hope, just five minutes just to explain what's going on um, with this way of uh, seeking to put forward a particular agenda. And then uh, perhaps next time um, we'll talk briefly about how we might combat it. So the reverse Mott and Bailey Trojan horse technique, what on earth are we talking about? Well, uh, the name derives from the combination of uh, two historical references. The first reference is to the Trojan horse, which as you know, it wasn't a Trojan horse at all, it was a Greek horse, but it was um, uh, in an effort to invade the ancient fortified city of Troy, the, the Greeks built a large horse, which they left outside the gates uh, as a apparently as a gift to the Trojans, uh, and the Trojans thought, oh, this is rather nice, and they brought it in. The horse actually contained a whole bunch of soldiers, um, Greek soldiers, sitting there silently waiting to be let into the city so they could sneak out of the horse at night, unlock the gates, and all their fellow soldiers could invade. So in other words, a Trojan horse refers to something which looks innocuous, maybe even looks like something rather nice, like a gift. Um, and um, then when you welcome it into your community or your city, it its contents will bring you down. Hence, I guess, the tagline, beware of Greeks bearing gifts. I guess that's where that comes from. So Trojan horse. Now, the Trojan horse um, uh, is used in relation to language in these kinds of discussions, where words that appear to have an innocuous meaning, like, oh, this is a rather nice Trojan horse, look at this gift for us, um, appear to have an innocuous meaning, actually turn out to be deployed later um, to... Uh, do damage because of what's secretly hidden inside them. Come back to that in a second. So that's the Trojan horse. What's the Mott and Bailey? Well, the Mott and Bailey is actually, uh, I believe, a, it originated in England, of all places. Um, it's a form of uh, medieval fortification. 
in which you'd have uh, a settlement with a, uh, a central a fortified structure called a mot, normally on a hill, which would be easy to defend, almost impregnable, um, because it would be small and have high walls. And at a, at a push, everybody in the village could squeeze into it and kind of uh, last out any siege, at least for a while, and seek to defend themselves. The mot, in other words, is the impregnable structure in the center. The bailey refers to the region uh, around that, or rather to the boundary of the region around that, which is bordered um, by a much smaller fence, um, which is far harder to defend. But that's where people would normally live. So you'd have this kind of fortified structure. In the center, you've got the, the castle where everyone can shelter and, and, and you can't possibly knock that thing down. That's how the theory goes. Outside, you have a much larger area, which is where you really want to be uh, most of the time. Um, but if necessary, uh, you have to all flee to the mot if an invasion comes because the, the bailey is not so easily defensible because it's so big. And so normally what happens with a mot and bailey is that um, uh, you retreat from the bailey to the mot in times of trouble so that you can uh, last out some kind of invasion. Well, what goes on here is um, the so-called reverse mot and bailey where the movement is designed to go in the opposite direction. So let me explain how it works. The two ideas combine uh, where what will happen is that somebody who is uh, either a woke or a woke proximate, uh, so unknowing proponent of social justice advocacy understood in critical social justice terms, will make a proposal in language which sounds perfectly acceptable, indeed laudable. It's a Trojan horse in the sense that it is uh, nothing that anybody could disagree with. Who could possibly criticize the Greeks for leaving this large, beautiful wooden horse outside our uh, settlement? Indeed, uh, it's so beautiful. Perhaps we ought to bring it in and place it in our town square where it'll look very pretty and we can be very proud of ourselves. It's a monument to our military prowess because look, it's a great big, strong horse. So it's brought in to the community on the misunderstood pretense that it's actually innocuous. Whereas in fact, what it contains is something that's destructive. Now, why Morton Bailey? Well, because the uh, in a kind of overlapping use of metaphors, the uh, innocuous understanding is the mot to which the critical social justice proponents will retreat if challenged. But what they really want to do is occupy the bailey, that is the less defensible critical social justice definition of the term. Now that all perhaps sounds a little abstract, so let me try and illustrate it, uh, what I'm talking about, with an example. And this example is uh, adapted from one in Pincourt and Lindsay's book on page 36, 37. But it's, I've adapted it in a way that makes it look like, makes it more obviously relevant to church situations, and you'll be able to see perhaps why something like this could be problematic. And I mean problematic not in the critical social justice sense, I mean actually problematic. Imagine you're advertising for a position in a church. You want to employ um, somebody, uh, a student worker, say. Um, and you can imagine my, why you might want to do that. Um, a lot of churches um, in university towns are conscious of uh, wanting to uh, evangelize and do discipleship uh, 
in or if they're not able to do it in around local university campuses. We've got a bunch of university uh, campuses uh, near us here in Fort Worth, and many people have. In, even in small towns, there are often su- substantial universities, and you want to employ a student worker. And so there you are in your uh, your know, elders board or um, uh, you're having discussions with a whole bunch of other people in the congregation, and, and somebody proposes that we, quote, we seek a candidate able to relate to people from different backgrounds. And that sounds like a good idea because, hey, why wouldn't it be a good idea to be able to relate to people from different backgrounds given the diverse makeup of many different universities? Excellent idea. Then somebody makes an apparently innocuous proposal just to tweak the language a little bit. Instead of we're seeking a candidate able to relate to people from different backgrounds, what they say is, We're seeking a candidate able to relate to people from diverse backgrounds, including at the intersection of those backgrounds. Now, if you weren't paying attention, you could easily look at those two proposals and think, actually, they seem to be saying much the same thing. And if anything, the second one looks a little better because it's a little more specific. Um, uh, it's, um, It's using the word diverse, which often people favor over different because um, for some reason people like speaking in words that sound slightly technical and diverse sounds a bit more technical than uh, different. And intersection, well, we all think we know what intersection means. And so you could easily imagine somebody saying, well, you know what, that's actually a great thing to put in the job description because it sort of seems to express what we thought we were all thinking. So what's just happened if you go ahead and do that? Well, a couple of things. Uh, first, a Trojan horse has been constructed. Uh, the horse, the innocuous looking gift, is what you thought you meant by diverse and intersection. While the Greek soldiers inside who are going to bring your city down are the critical social justice understandings of those same terms, diverse and intersection. Uh, you know, if you've um, listened to the last but one podcast, Uh, in this series, that diversity means, in critical social justice advocacy, not a diverse range of people with different skills and abilities and experiences that makes them well able to do a particular job or anything of that sort. What it means is people who all embrace the same critical social justice advocacy philosophical framework who are committed to activism within that framework, but come from a diverse range of different so-called oppressed groups. That's what diverse means. That's the uh, Greek soldiers inside the uh, it, what looks like the innocuous Trojan horse. Uh, similarly with intersection. Intersection doesn't mean just um, the, the point of coincidence of. Intersection has a technical meaning within critical social justice, advocacy, and activism, where it's designed to pick up all the uh, work of people like Kimberly Crenshaw and uh, those who've been writing in that vein in the last two or three decades. So you see what's happened. Uh, You've constructed something which, or you've allowed the construction of something which looked innocuous, looked harmless, might even have looked laudable, and is actually destructive. Now, why is it a reverse Morton Bailey? Well, imagine what's going to happen for a moment if you're in that uh, meeting and you realize what's happening and you push back a little bit against this 
proposed redefinition. Remember the, re, the, the restated uh, job uh, description. We're seeking a candidate able to relate to people from diverse backgrounds, including at the intersection of, that, of those backgrounds. Mm-hmm. What's going to happen? As you push back, a critical social justice advocate who knows what they're doing is going to retreat to the mot. That is, they're going to retreat to the totally impregnable meaning of those um, expressions. Who possibly wants to be against diversity? Who could fail to see the value of being able to relate to people at the intersection of different backgrounds? Why are you being so suspicious? And so on and so forth. In other words, retreating to the mot is what you want to do, is what an activist will do when they want to defend the language that they're seeking to import into, in this case, the job description. Whereas what they actually want to have is not the mot, but the Bailey. It's the reverse mot and Bailey argument. The language, to summarise, the language is inserted under the pretense of having the perfectly defensible and impregnable mot, meaning the tower in the centre of the village. Whereas in fact, the aim is to reverse the process and move outwards from the mot to establish the Bailey. Now, the same thing can and will be done with a simply bewildering range of terms, many of which you may not have heard in the kind of contexts in which you may encounter them, and you might think you know what they mean. Phrases and words like anti-racism and diversity and equity and inclusion and justice and so on and so forth. All the kinds of things that it's very hard to argue against, especially when somebody can just retreat to the mot, that is to the perfectly defensible, impregnable understanding of those words. The crucial thing to realise is that's not what a critical social justice advocate is trying to establish. So this leads then to the final uh, suggestion I want to make, and uh, this is my substitute for going through in great detail uh, every single paragraph and subparagraph of um, Pincourt and Lindsay's book. Um, if you find it helpful or if you think you'd find it helpful, I encourage you to go through it. But I, I think going through it in this context uh, would take too long and would be uh, unproductive. But what can we do? It's really very simple. Uh, if you hear something that doesn't sound familiar, be alert to it. If it sounds strange to you, it probably is. Now, I'm certainly not trying to inculcate a kind of hermeneutic of suspicion. Far from it. Indeed, uh, that's the last thing I want to do. Even if it turns out that um, the term that you're encountering uh, has a kind of critical social justice flavour. Remember what I said last time, we don't want to assume the worst of people. We must distinguish between uh, woke activists on the one hand and people who are merely uh, hoodwinked or taken in themselves by the Trojan horse character of the language on the other. Don't assume the worst of people. Don't assume the worst of people in your church, in your family, in your workplace, and so on and so forth. But it's vitally important to get clarity about what the speaker intends by those terms. And the way you will be able to tell whether the person is, in fact, a woke activist or whether they're actually 
just um, broadly speaking persuaded by the uh, rhetoric of critical social justice is what will happen when you propose an unambiguous alternative. If you propose an unambiguous alternative to the language that's being used in whatever context that can only have um, or is is defined as having uh, a biblical content, then somebody who's uh, merely been taken in by the rhetoric of wokeness is unlikely to push back as hard as somebody who is actually fully clear in their own mind about what they're doing and is actually trying to push that agenda. So again, I emphasize, please don't assume the worst of people, but we have to be alert to uh, words and phrases that seem unfamiliar because if it's if something strange seems to be going on, if you find yourself facing a form of argument with which you think, I've, I've never heard anybody talking in this way before, except on Twitter. And why you're on Twitter, I wouldn't know. But if, if you find yourself encountering something that looks a little strange, it probably is. If somebody says, uh, you're centering whiteness, or I don't feel safe in this space, or uh, that comes from a place of privilege, you, you shouldn't just let it pass. We need to clarify what is meant by that and insist in the clarification on distinguishing between a critical social justice uh, meaning of the disputed terms and an innocuous meaning. Don't ever let uh, vaguely defined terms find their way into things you've agreed on or policies or job descriptions or uh, any other documents in your organization or in your churches or anywhere else. Because it is precisely that ambiguity that critical social justice activism trades upon. Okay, I think that'll do us. Um, as I said, I've not tried to go through every um, aspect of woke craft in chapter two. I don't think it'll be productive and it will take us a long time to do so. If it is something which you're uh, facing or uh, which these podcasts have alerted you to the fact that you might face, I encourage you to get hold of this. Um, I found it a helpful book, Counter Work Craft by Pincourt and Lindsay. Um, next time, I think we'll probably round off uh, just by looking briefly at chapter three and um, highlighting a few, a few other constructive ways forward in engaging with um, this kind of uh, uh, problem uh, in whatever context you might encounter it. But for now, I think that'll do. Uh, the Lord bless you and see you next time. Bye for now.